0: Welcome to the Energy Environment Economy podcast, a production of the Environmental Business Council of New England. My name is Anne Geisner. I'm Executive Director at EBC and your host for this episode. Here at Energy Environment Economy, we talk about the business of the environment. And in particular, we are doing a series highlighting our recent award winners at our EV Awards, which were presented on June 8th uh, in Boston. So we'll put a link in the show notes for more information on the awards. Uh, But today's episode is going to be a continuation of this series. So I'll start by introducing our our little fandom for our award recipient. So Michelle O'Brien is a partner at the law firm Pierce Atwood. She's also on the EBC Board of Directors. She's our clerk. Thank goodness. Always good to have a lawyer as your clerk. Michelle handles environmental and land use permitting. And I pulled this little fun fact from her bio. She obtained a victory before the state Supreme Judicial Court in 2014. Sounds like a big deal. Also with me is Marty Suberg. He is executive director at the Northeast Waste Management Officials Association, or often simply called NUMOA. Marty is a defector from state government. He served as the commissioner of the Massachusetts Department of Environmental Protection for eight years, um, very recently retired from that, or defected from that. (laughs) And he's been with the state government, according to his LinkedIn page, since 1993, so quite a tenure. Marty had the pleasure of working with our award winner at MassDEP, and I'm sure he has some really excellent stories to share. So looking forward to hearing uh, more. So welcome, Marty and Michelle, our little fandom. Thank you. And now I'm going to introduce our award winner. So Paul Locke served the citizenry of the Commonwealth for 35 years, beginning his career at MassDEP in 1987, fresh out of graduate school. In 2003, Paul began his long tenure in MassDEP's Bureau of Wayside Cleanup, which is arguably the reason why we all love Paul an excellent communicator, enthusiastic collaborator, and generous with his time, the Commonwealth is most certainly better off because of Paul's commitment. So congrats to Paul on receiving EBC's Paul G. Kio Award for Government Leadership. Thank you. It's great to be here. So thank you all for joining. We're hoping to have a really good conversation here, and I'm just going to really kick it off very quickly. So Paul, MassDEP, back in the early 2000s, you were with Bureau of Wayside Cleanup. What was your focus at that time?
1: I came to Wayside Cleanup from... Uh, the Office of Research and Standards. So, and I came into probably one of the only positions I was qualified for at the time, uh, which was policy development in waste site cleanup. I had been working in research and standards, working primarily on waste site cleanup issues. Uh, so, moving over to the bureau and working more explicitly on on the policy was a natural kind of progression for me. And uh, unfortunately, at that time, one of the major things we were focused on was uh, downsizing and budget issues. That was 2004 was the beginning of uh, the steady decline of, of DEP staff across the agency, uh, and particularly in waste site cleanup. One of the things we were working on is, at the one hand, trying, well, mostly trying to figure out how to do what we can, and admittedly, how to do more with less, literally, Our fewer staff. And luckily, at that time, there was a, a big increase in the availability of technology. So throughout the 2000s, we were all struggling with that. Uh, How do we incorporate the technology to try to make up for the ever-dwindling staff that we had? Uh, Particularly the first to go was pretty much the administrative staff, and we began to rely more and more on electronically submitted documents and our computers. We went from sharing one computer with an office of 15 people to... Yeah, a little bit before the 2000s, but not not too much before uh, finally getting one computer per person.
0: Right, of course, yeah. Definitely a different time, of course, at that time. And Marty, where were you with, within DP at that time? Were you interacting with Paul at that point?
2: I was. I was in our central regional office in Worcester. You know, Paul uh, worked closely with people um, in the regional offices as well as headquarters. And, um, you know, Paul is right. I mean, uh, I remember very well how difficult the early 2000s were, you know, based on a number of events that really, you know, uh, created financial disruption. And, and I do remember, and one of Paul's achievements I would maintain is, um, and I'll come back to more than one probably while I'm talking in in the early 2000s given the issues they were confronting Paul developed this approach that actually led the whole rest of the agency to put our records online and it literally he literally left the agency by figuring out how to do that scanning things in and having people be able to access information online and, you know, the agency, I think, has pretty much caught up now that we're doing more electronically, but but he was a real leader in that. In addition to thinking about that kind of ha- use of technology, he was also just a real problem solver. When I worked in the region, I remember we had one particularly challenging cleanup issue where the, the recollections uh, were, um, you know, of different parties, you know, with a transition were very confusing. Paul sort of help the region sit down way into it and, um, you know, really pull us all back together again and, and keep a cleanup moving on that, you know, not only achieved the environmental result, but really sort of benefited the community.
0: That's great. Michelle, so at this time, you're a lawyer and you're probably actually quite happy that things are now online with, with DEP, is that right?
3: <laughs> yeah, I, I have to pick up on, on that whole notion of putting things online because um, back in the day, <laughs> when those of us started practicing environmental law, or many consultants did the same thing. If you wanted to review a file at Mass particularly waste site cleanup files, which I was very familiar with, you had to schedule an appointment and go to one of the regional offices and review the hard copy file and hope for the best that everything you were looking for was actually there. And that wasn't always the case. And that was, you know, time consuming and and challenging. And the fact that this what was then a you know, new approach was um, made available to everybody, to, to sit at regular citizens, but obviously the regulated community, lawyers, consultants, whomever was interested in looking at information about waste sites in Massachusetts could literally go online. And I don't know if I can use the phrase yet, but sitting in, as Paul would say, and he probably correct the way I said it, but sitting at your kitchen table in your bunny slippers And you could look up information and find out, you know, is it in fact a site and look at the reports that have been filed to talk about, you know, what was found there in terms of the contamination and concentrations and exposures and things, whatever one needed to know about a particular location and whether it was designated as a disposal site, it was Huge. It really was transformative. And I think, um, in hindsight, you know, here we are in twenty twenty three, people do this routinely. And I'm suspect that a lot of folks don't remember that this was a big deal. <laughs>
0: Oh I would agree with you. I'm sure most people don't can't appreciate that very well these days since everything's online. But it's, I think it's really interesting that Paul, a person in a Bureau of Site Cleanup would have this idea to do put things online. Do you have some sort of technical background that or you just thought it was a good idea?
1: <laughs> it goes back actually quite quite a ways. Um you know, I I dabbled in computers a long time before I came to DEP and early in the process when I was hired Uh, in 1987, one of the first things I was assigned was doing these routine uh, risk assessments for the drinking water results as yeah, you know, results would come in every month, you know, and there would be low levels of contamination. So the Office of Research and Standards would run a risk assessment to, to see what risk the drinking water posed. So one of my first uh thoughts was well, we have one computer, nobody else is using it because they don't know how. And this is all kind of repetitive work. I can write a spreadsheet that will do all this for me and save me a lot of time. And that eventually became the risk assessment short forms that we used in waste site cleanup for site work and we had um in order to get that out that spreadsheet out to people we had developed a bulletin board system back in the early 1990s so that people could dial in with their modems and and screech and we bought a 499 dollar uh handy computer from the radio shack down down (laughs) because it was one dollar below the 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 point where we have to put it out to bid uh and (laughs) Installed a fax machine line and set up this bulletin board system. And then that kind of transitioned into uh, the World Wide Web in the mid-90s. They came to DEP and said, you're one of the three agencies that uh, we want to put online. The municipalities wanted you know, DOR, DEP, and somebody else uh, online. Uh, and the IT folks at, at DEP said, no, th- that's not IT, but there's this guy running this bulletin board system. He could do it. So I... I okay, was put in charge of developing DEP's website. All right, so there's this kind of long side job that I had informally of getting DEP material, whether it was the, the, the short form or web information on the website, getting it out and getting it available to people. So kind of getting the wayside cleanup files online was kind of the natural progression of, of what more can
2: we do.
0: What's going on with these pink bunny slippers that people keep talking about? What What is that story, Marty? Do you know the story?
2: I do. Apparently, when Paul was rolling this system out, you know, he would do training. Part of what you noted in your introduction and Michelle noted is that Paul uh, spent a lot of time trying to make sure that information was accessible. That he was working with the user community and the public to make sure that it was available. And uh, I saw it at his retirement party. There is a picture of Paul in front of a screen that has the image of one of the records up there and he's pointing to it and he's got a tie he's you know got business clothing on but on his feet are two pink bunny slippers
0: it's like a, it's like a Zoom world, but back then, you know, you like predicted the future, Paul. <laughs> he,
2: he, he, totally did, and, um, you know, that was what he said. You can be at home, and you know, in your bunny slippers. And I'll make one other observation that his colleagues never forgot that. So at his retirement, there is a plaque, and, um, it is the uh, ceremonial bunny slippers, the commemorative bunny slippers, uh, commemorating his innovation and his way of selling that innovation.
0: It's a lovely plaque with two white, I will say, white bunny slippers, right? Or are they pink? <laughs> yeah, they
1: could get the pink ones for <laughs> with, with pink highlights. Yeah,
0: Very nice. Pink highlights. And it really is funny that that's really like a 30 years in advance Zoom uh, business on top, uh, party on the bottom situation.
1: <laughs> I, I think one of the, the things that helped get all of that online, though, was that you had to make sure that you were offering the regulated community something in exchange. And the pink bunny slippers and the, the the training and the advertising was part of that. This is what you get for for doing all this work. Um, because we had had EDP for you know five or six years uh, before kind of we we made the push to get everything online, and we had about a five percent participation rate. People weren't because they were getting nothing, they would submit things electronically, but they also had to submit it in paper. Once they submitted it electronically, it just went somewhere, and so part of the deal was that we would require people to submit things electronically, but the regulated community in particular had to get something back for that. Uh, it had to be worth their while as well. Um, so the the pink bunny slippers was a way of selling. This is what you get. <laughs> you get the convenience of of doing it. And I, I think Matt Hackman at, at one point had made some comment that you know he was really happy about this because he was on top of a mountain skiing one time and. Got a frantic call from a client saying you know something had to be done, and he was able to you know sit in the ski chalet and and submit things online for him, and that got made everything worthwhile. But you have it has it has to work for everybody in order for it to work.
3: Can I just jump in and say? I mean, yes, I obviously agree with everything Paul just said, but but it makes me think of how forward thinking and innovative Paul was um, because this, you know, as he just said, I mean this whole IT technology thing became sort of a side gig almost. I mean, Paul would run meetings and make sure that there was technology, there was video technology to to have a meeting, a voice like cleanup advisory committee meeting available to people that he didn't have to do. (laughs) Or the, you know, the bunny slippers coming up with a way to explain to people how this was going to make their lives better and easier and their professional lives, obviously, but, but for communities and sort of, Average people, if you will, I mean, make their lives better, too, because communities, you know, or someone is concerned about a whatever, a spill at a gas station or whatever it may be, some contaminated site they heard about and they might be worried about, but they wouldn't necessarily be able to go make an appointment, go to DP or know how to do all that. And then learning that there's a way they can get information. And to me, I mean, again, it was just when you think back, which I do, <laughs> when I think back to. You know, Paul being able to not only do the presentation and explain to people, hey, this electronic filing system now is going to give you this additional piece, which is you can actually get access to that information. It doesn't just go into the black hole or the cloud or wherever it goes. Thinking up this, the whole notion of you can sit at your kitchen table and your bunny slippers. I mean, it's a, again, this was years ago and I, I have this memory and obviously many other people do as well. Um, I guess, folks of my generation, so to speak, generation in the in the professional world that we live in.
2: And I just add Paul kept this up throughout. First of all, one thing he confessed to me was that on his spare time, he likes to rebuild his computer at home. I can't even process that. But he also did this YouTube. I think he actually started our DEP YouTube channel. And every once in a while, the IT guys would figure out that there was this enterprise developing here. And, you know, as you know, everything is so regulated. But, you know, Paul had this ability to move so quickly that, you know, the reason we have things on YouTube, I would submit, is because of Paul. And in fact, you know, it was not only valuable for what Paul was doing with Wayside Cleanup and and any number of programs, other bureaus would come to him and ask him to help film things and help set things up. And um, he would do it. I still remember one time in our large conference room, Paul literally on a ladder, hanging things from the ceiling so that the <laughs> microphones would be in just the right place so you could hear the presenter and the audience. And um, just remarkable.
1: Right, you make that sound OSHA compliant. Yeah, you know, honestly, it
0: was standing on chairs.
2: <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, I knew. It was pretty dramatic when I walked in.
0: <laughs> no, we won't mention that. That's that's in the past now. <laughs> so technically, you're in the Bureau of Wayside Cleanup, and you're focused on a couple of things. And I know that some of the things that were pointed out and pulled out of some successes that you had and, um, you know, programs and that you managed, one was the Rails to Trails program. So I don't know if we want to touch on that briefly, you know. How did that develop? What was your impact there? Do you think, Paul?
1: That's one of my favorite policies. And, you know, it's kind of a niche policy. Uh, people really probably aren't as aware of unless you're building a rail trail.
0: Well, then it's good to talk about.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, that and that gave me. Chance to work a lot with uh, Gina McCarthy. We had run into the problem where, at that point, where uh, the MBTA in particular had all of these rights of ways that they were not no longer using, um, left over from Boston Main Railway days and, and so on, and their conditions for leasing them to the towns for ninety-nine year leases uh, to be developed into rail trails required a indemnification. Uh, they did not, and they did not allow prior sampling. Of the rail trail of the rail line, uh, and they made the towns promise that you know whatever whatever contamination there is now the town's problem. Uh, so the towns, of course, you know smartly would not uh, buy into that. So there was a, a, a standoff, and Gina was amazing to watch. Bringing everybody together. uh, And I was uh, really lucky to to participate and to sit in on on these and participate. Uh, Bring in the stakeholders, bring in MBTA, maybe browbeat the MBTA a little bit. She was undersecretary at the time. And eventually it led to an addition uh, to state law, which provide liability protection for the MBTA in towns as long as certain steps are taken to uh, prevent exposure. So the policy kind of implemented that, described kind of what DEP would look at or how to evaluate a rail line when things needed to come in formally into 21E system, when some types of contamination could be dealt with kind of outside the system under this new law and where you may or may not even need to sample. So it it was intended to streamline the process, make it clear kind of where the boundaries were, when you had to be more careful, where you could move ahead. um, And it, it was one of the more gratifying policies, you know, I would say to this day, but up until last year, I would still get telephone calls about it from towns developing rail trails. And and Steve Winslow, who used to work for us in Wayside Cleanup back years ago, is now a city councilor uh, in the city of Malden uh, and was a primary uh, mover and shaker for the um, bike to the sea rail trail. Every time I see him, he thanks me for <laughs> for that policy because it was one of the pieces that helped them get their bike to the sea trail done.
0: I mean, I gather that these kinds of things, people don't really realize all of the things that go on behind the scenes to simply have this great rail trail that you just enjoy recreationally and you get your family out, you go on this bike ride, and you just don't realize that there's actually quite a bit of um, back and forth and, you know, tense feelings and all this stuff that goes on behind the scenes to make these things happen.
3: Um, I wanted to pick up on what you said way at the beginning, Paul, about um, your your background and where you started your work at MassDEP. It was in the Office of Research and Standards, and you used to do risk assessments so, of um, you know information data that was coming in about contamination in water. And so I'm I'm interested in in you talking a little bit about how you used your background in um, in in training and education as a risk assessor in policy work for MassDEP because you obviously left the Office of Research and Standards, went to Bureau Waste Site Cleanup in a number of different roles, including Assistant Commissioner for the Bureau. Obviously involved in policy decisions and. Um, I'll call them sort of more high stakes issues. So so how did that background and training and risk and how to communicate risk and how to assess risk and all that? How how I would think that was extremely beneficial to the bureau overall. But I'm curious what your perspective is and how that worked out and played out for you.
1: Yeah, I think my time in ORAS Had a number of benefits. One was risk assessment, and you know the risk posed by chemicals to human health or the environment is really, you know, the the basis of all of our regulations, or or most of them. Uh, so kind of having that background, uh, I think, helped me feel comfortable in in other roles as well, uh, because you no. Know, no matter what program I was working with, uh, it all comes back to how much contamination is you know is either there or we're talking about uh, allowing to be put into the environment and what effect will that have, and having kind of a the background of risk assessment and the comfort of kind of knowing what it all means and and really what the strengths and weaknesses are uh, how much to take literally and uh, and when to kind of take into account the uncertainties and the variability and um, and all the nuances, I felt very comfortable with that. And certainly I viewed when I went to wayside, uh, wayside Cleanup and working with Deirdre Manoia, who was the assistant commissioner at the time, and later Dick Chalpin when he was there temporarily, and Janine Comerford and, and Ben, I always felt that one of my roles there was translating what ORS and kind of the risk assessors were saying and you know, how can we fit that into to the policies? Because it's not, it's not black and white. And and I think the tendency for people who are not risk assessors and, and who feel uncomfortable with that, the the tendency is to view it as, you know, there's a risk and thus that's bad. And being able to take a step back and understand that it's a continuum, uh, it's a distribution. And you know, I have this thing where really I I view all of life as a normal distribution and everything just fits in along the curve. And and being able to put that into perspective, and in, I viewed my job partly as translating that to the assistant commissioner I'd be working with, or to you know the deputy commissioners or the commissioner, and kind of help make people understand what the kind of how it all actually fits together,
3: well as someone who has represented, you know, the regulated community, um having somebody who had that background and and that experience who could bring that perspective to discussions about. Really difficult topics about you know contamination in in the community and having Paul's perspective. I know I can say I know firsthand from sites that I've you know worked with folks on that that was tremendous and and that's a a, a huge um, asset that he brought to the agency and we're gonna miss.
2: <laughs> I just I just add to that. I agree with all of that. And you saw that, you know, when you heard about the trails example, but again, you saw that Paul doing that throughout soils. Most of the world will say soils. What are we spending time talking about that? But an EBC audience, of course, and a DEP audience, of course, would understand that, uh, you know, right up there with Title V, soil is where it's at. You you know, there's a very, there've been very real issues. Um, You know, we're having a lot of redevelopment of urban areas, which is great, but the soil Soils, you know, given a long history of of uses, you know, raise issues about where do you put this material and where do you put it safely? And it seemed like every few years, the agency, I know I did, called upon Paul to help us figure out what are accessible, safe outlets for soil coming from different sites. Where can you put them? Whether it's our, now I'm going to get really jargony, the COM 97 soils that went in, in landfills in the old days to other types of soils that you know might have an appropriate use um and it is uh you know able to allow a project to move forward economically while making sure that you know where the soils are going paul designed regulations he developed policies and again a lot of it was based on really breaking apart situations and looking at okay when we're dealing with this kind of stuff, this is what we need to worry about. When we're dealing with this kind of stuff, maybe that's a little different. And that lends to different kinds of conclusions. And Paul always had a way of doing that. He would involve the risk assessors. He would involve the program people. He would involve, you know, the outside stakeholders and sort of work together to make sure that people really understood, you know, not only what the issues were, but, you know, sort of work with them to develop these types of solutions. And um, like I said, whether it was rail trails or, or, uh, dealing with uh, post-construction soils, Paul always had that ability to to you know bring the best information together and and think about the practicalities and involve the people that were you know at the end the end users in it.
3: Can I pick up on that last point and move us to another sort of slightly different but related topic, which is involvement of stakeholders? Because you already just mentioned that Paul was was um, really. Good at my word, right? At um, involving stakeholders in the in the conversations, whether it was about reuse of soils, for, as you said, or reusing an old rail bed as a as trail and making sure that there's not, um, you know, unacceptable concentrations of contaminants left left behind, kind of a thing. But in my experience, not all regulators are all that. What's the best way to put it? You know. Um, excited about involving the stakeholders in the conversations when you're talking about, for example, new policies or regulations that the agency might be contemplating. And, and, and Paul, in, in my experience, did not take that approach. He was extremely generous with his time with the EBC for one, you know, as one example of an organization that he um, collaborated with and, and made presentations to, but also listened to. So I'm just curious, Paul, I mean, again, this is, you know, maybe, I don't know, you, you can answer, maybe you thought it was part of your job, but I'm not sure everybody thinks it's part of their job as a regulator to, to really interact with, to the extent you did, the regulated community. So where did that come from? And why did you think that was so important to your role?
1: Uh, well first I came came into the DEP and started working a lot you know while I was in ORS I was working a lot with the Wayside Cleanup program and you have to remember that Jim Coleman was the assistant commissioner and Sarah Weinstein was the, the um, division director for policy and and I learned from them I think the the importance of of talking with the stakeholders they set the the expectation at least for the Wayside Cleanup program that this is a kind of cooperative adventure. Uh, I, I came in in 1987, just as the old MCP, the original MCP, was going into effect. And my understanding or experience at at that time, as you're know, a young kid coming in, um, I think that was uh, developed more traditionally. And I, I think very quickly, you know, we all came to understand that there were backlogs there were problems with that it was the, the old command control the process was essentially copied from the way EPA was doing things uh, and very quickly and there's a whole history about uh, about the development of the MCP but you know at some point you know Jim Coleman and his staff in Wayside like Cleanup you know made that leap that you know this is broken. We're not going to wait for it to kind of continue play out. We're going to work with the stakeholders who are already proposing alternatives and changes. And we're not going to resist it. We're going to work with them. And seeing that and and being brought into that process and working with everybody, I saw how well it worked. and and really, when you grow essentially grew up that way, I wouldn't expect to do it any other way. And so I think it stems from that. Uh, And and the other thing I I was thinking about uh, a little bit earlier was that um, when I was in high school, I was in the debate club. And one of the things about debating is uh, that you have to argue both sides of the issue. You know, going into a debating competition, you don't know which side you're going to be on. So you have to be ready for both. And for better or for worse, and there are some downsides to it, I I find it hard not to look at the other side of the question. And I, I think if you want to both make people understand kind of why the regulations are written the way they are and and understand the perspective, not necessarily like it, but at least understand why it's written like that. But in order to do that, to be, be fair, you have to understand the other perspectives as well, why the PRPs or the LSPs or the uh, community activists are coming at these questions from a slightly different perspective. Uh, and you have to talk with them to understand that. You, you can't be adequately prepared without talking with people and, and listening to them. And you know it's, and they often have better ideas. And it's not a bad thing to say, OK, I didn't think of that. That's great. We can't do it exactly the way you want, but you know we can modify things
0: yeah, that's great, Paul. I think that's a really great reflection. And Marty, you know you you've you know we're in central region and you've had different roles with Paul at the same, you know as as your career sort of went on. um what what were your reflections on this ability for Paul to reach out to stakeholders like he can?
2: Paul, again, just in so many ways, really set the standard. I I do also appreciate the shout out that he gave to, you know, Jim Coleman and, and Sarah, who really did, you know, invest so much in that. And um, I think it's appropriate to mention that. But Paul, you know, again, you can't really know, no matter how good you are, you can't really know how something's going to go in the real world unless you're talking to the real world. And and Paul embodied that and again got tremendous tremendous results people were happy to engage they were happy to give of their time and you know it's it's really part of the you know the other things we were talking about paul when you think about it that engagement you know led to things like putting things online led to things like a youtube channel led to things like you know ongoing discussions with advisory committees to make sure that they knew what was going on Uh, and People would come and borrow from the Paul Locke playbook regularly because he was so capable in that and and um again i think I think it's a model, and as Paul said, you know if once you do things this way, it's kind of hard to imagine not doing it that way because to me, the biggest worry I would have is what did I not think of, and the only way you know is to have an inclusive process, so you know paul's paul's just uh you know uh the Paul Locke model, I I suspect, will will live on in, in DEP and other parts of state mm-hmm. government for a while. In and, perpetuity, and, I hope. In
0: perpetuity, yeah, hopefully. <laughs> and, and, and our
2: stakeholders are
1: not shy about telling us their perspectives. Uh, and I'd rather hear it before we write
0: the regs. Right.
1: <laughs> uh, because we'll hear it afterwards.
0: That's uh, right. Yeah. I think it's time for some fun story time. So I'm hoping that both Marty and Michelle might have some sort of little interesting anecdote to share that would uh, amuse, amuse folks. So uh, I don't know who wants to try to go
2: first I'll, here. I'll go first. All right, it's Marty. gotta
3: be, Mar- Marty, it's all you. Cause
2: yeah. I, yeah, <laughs> well, you, you probably, you probably have some, but
1: um, I'm, I'm on my best behavior
2: with Michelle. Right, right, right. <laughs> True. Lil, little known fact. Well, maybe it's not so little known, Paul is a great chef and getting better by the day. Um, in fact, one of his going-away gifts from his colleagues was something uh, tuition, <laughs> partial remediation for for you know going to the Cambridge Culinary Institute. But one thing about Paul. And we can say this now because um, you know we're, I think I think it's safe. But Paul, around the holidays, there was always one day when he would put on a white chef's coat. He would find one of those AV carts, you know, like you used to have the slide projectors sitting yeah, on right. in junior high school and he would set up a hot plate and make you know go from floor to floor making crepes for people he'd go down the elevator get out on the fifth floor wheel around make crepes and yes it could be sweet or savory they were very good um sometimes i think he had beverages you know non-alcoholic just to be clear of course um but he he would he would go do that you know you'd think people were appreciative and they were but one time um he decided to start making bacon, and um, apparently the the scent got up into the air exchange system. And apparently, not everybody likes the smell of bacon the same way I do. So, so he had to go kind of low key for a, a year after the landlord, um, you know, started asking questions. But now Paul, and Paul was always like that. There would always be some special dish or something he would cook, but but the holidays those 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 were really the best. and um, um, yeah, somewhere in the agency, there are a bunch of pictures of Paul in this white chef's coat. That's amazing.
3: <laughs> I did not know that. I knew Paul was a baker and a and a chef, but I did not know he made such treats for the DP staff, so I'm sorry I missed out on that. <laughs>
2: It, there is also, um, and it circulates fairly often, when you look for pictures of Paul, I think from a Christmas party about 15 years ago, Paul in an Elvis wig and a jumpsuit. I think he was sitting next to Mary Gardner in that photo. Um, you know, he was making the rounds. He was visiting everybody. But that's that's the photo that was snapped. And um, it was a pretty good Elvis wig, I've got to admit. I so. want
0: to say Paul may have provided that. Yeah, they, there are a lot of
1: photos.
2: Yes. Okay, good.
1: Yeah, wayside cleanup used to have uh, different themes for the holiday parties. So the Elvis photo wasn't weren't too bad. the The South Pacific year, where we had a a volcano that would you know, spew <laughs> something, uh, and grass skirts. The grass skirts photographs might have been a little a little over the top, but right. Uh-huh. <laughs> Michelle, do you have anything you want to well...
3: share? <laughs> I just could say on the on the photos. Um, those sound pretty amazing. I have not um, seen those. Those are probably kept within the DP world. I suspect <laughs> um, you, you're probably happy about that. But um, but Paul actually is a great photographer and has taken wonderful pictures of lots of different things um, all across the. Well, I was going to say the the region, Massachusetts, wherever. I don't even know where the extent of here. Actually, and I've I did see one recently of some beautiful spot, some foreign country, I forget where it was. But in any event, some great pictures of, you know, related to to work, too. I mean, some restored sites, um, some rail trails, some photos of wildlife in areas that were, you know, perhaps formerly contaminated, sort of blighted sites. So he he managed to weave it all together.
0: but um the real renaissance man he's a chef he's a photographer one of
1: my job before before i came to dep um you had one i had (laughs) well i was in graduate school but during graduate school i i worked uh on the weekends and at Bronte Degay, which was a a camera store in harvard square and they had a dark room in the basement uh so i used to develop black and white photographs and in the mid 80s dep used to you know they would take formal photographs of like the staff and <laughs> and they would send it to Franti Dage. as we were moving out of one winter street uh we we're all frantically trying to clean things up and ed coletta and i coletta our press secretary we're working on this, this project of getting all of the old photographs and negatives and slides scanned are, because we couldn't, there was no room to take them with us when we moved to the Salton Cell salt building. So we're frantically going through that. And so I would bring home, because we're working remotely, like boxes full of old negatives and go through them. And it was very weird pulling out these negatives uh, in envelopes and seeing my handwriting on the envelope from Ferranti Degate. Wow. Where I was the first person to touch the film and to develop it and to print the pictures. Wow. And then 37 years later or so, I was the last person to touch the film as I scanned them and then threw them away.
0: That's crazy. What a, what a what a great story. I love that. <laughs> I'm glad you shared that, Paul. That's really, really interesting. I can't believe like, you first and last on those photos. Yeah. Coming full circle, right? Yeah. <laughs>
1: So part of the end result of all of that scanning, if you go to DEP's Flickr site, we, we don't show all of the staff photos, you know, without their permission, all of that. So a lot of that is is not public. But a lot of the old, old photographs going back like air air pollution from the mid-1970s, uh, there are some great photographs there and and all the way, you know, up to present time.
0: Do you have your own Flickr, Paul?
1: Uh yes, I do.
0: Okay. We'll have lots of great links in the show notes for folks to click on and view. We can do the DP Flickr and Paul's Flickr. and maybe, Paul, you can pick out your favorite recipe or something. We' we'll <laughs> your crepe recipe potentially. So well, thank you all for joining today. I think this was a great conversation. I love hearing about sort of the history of some of our, you know, environmental regs and our our agencies and, you know, the times of one computer for every fifteen people and, it's just fun to revisit some of the the challenges and and the ways that that people like Paul have overcome some of the things that have been going on in the past. So thanks to Marty and Michelle for, for being here to reminisce a little bit with Paul and sing his praises. And Paul, thanks so much for joining and for all that you've contributed. The thing that I've taken away from all of the conversations I've had about your time is just your willingness to spend your time with people and just, you know, collaborate and talk and communicate and just be with be with people there to answer their questions and just chat and talk. So appreciate that.
1: Uh, I enjoy doing it.
0: We appreciate it too.
2: Congratulations, Paul. Yeah.
0: Congratulations, Paul. I hope you enjoyed today's episode with Paul, Michelle, and Marty. Paul's career at the Bureau of Wayside Cleanup has truly transformed Massachusetts communities for the better, and his approach to work has really set a high standard for his colleagues at MassDEP and really for any public agency employee out there. His openness to feedback, his willingness to spend time at community meetings, and even with organizations like EBC, really helped move forward all of his uh, work at MassDEP. You'll find links from the discussion in the show notes, as well as a link back to our website, ebcne.org. We are a brand new podcast, so please like, rate, leave a comment on whatever platform you are listening. Me and my staff, we'll all be reading them. We're going to take them all to heart and uh, make sure we implement whatever strategies and suggestions you all have as we develop more episodes. See you next time for a discussion about the collaborative effort of the Cambridge Crossing Project, another EB Award winner. Uh, the project really has transformed an industrial corner of Cambridge, Somerville, and Boston altogether into a vibrant transit-oriented neighborhood. Energy Environment Economy is a production of the Environmental Business Council of New England. Thank you to EBC Administrative Coordinator Stephanie Sikar for editing the episode and managing the branding and marketing, and to EBC intern Anna Wilcox for her wordsmithing. Music is only forwarded by Roman Sinek Music 2023.